My name is Lucille. How are you this morning? Ever since I got up this morning and looked out, through my mind has raced over and over again how beautiful upon the mountain. And it is beautiful this morning. I love the mountains. We come from the most unbelievably flat country you can imagine. I told somebody the other day, if it were not for the pine trees, you could see eternity down there. There's nothing to... Uh, I want to thank the committee for the invitation to share with you all this morning. It's always with a little sense of shock that I receive an invitation. Uh, I'm, I get humility from every side. I just, you just can't imagine the opportunities that are mine for becoming humble. Uh, obviously, I needed it and needed it intensely because I get it over and over again from every source imaginable. I thought I, my friend asked me, are you looking too darling this morning? And I thought I looked pretty darling. And when I started out, I realized I had on a pair of shoes that squeaks. So there's always, there's always a flaw with me. I can't ever get it entirely together. Uh, and I guess that's the story of my life. I have, I have given it everything that I've got, that I'm capable of. And somehow it never works totally. It never comes totally together. Um, I no longer feel the burden that I once did when I get up here. Uh, you know that when I sit down, somebody's going to jump up and say that they are not responsible for anything that I've said or any of the opinions I've experienced. I used to think that was the most unfriendly thing that I could have ever heard of. Uh, if they ask you to speak, why do they want to wash the hands of you the moment you've spoken? But I find great comfort in that now. I no longer feel that I am carrying the whole burden of Al-Anon as I once did. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to say this morning. I've become aware of the fact that when you are invited to speak like this, someone has probably heard a tape. And I can't for the life of me, I, I said when I came to Alanine, my brain must have looked like a bowl of scrambled eggs had, had I been able to see it. I couldn't, I was the most untogether person imaginable. I was living, you talk about split level. I was split into about five or six different people. And I was not all of any of them, but maybe a little bit of all of them. So that's the way I have to do it. I have to continually muddle through and maybe someday again it will all come together. Oh. I'm going to make two identifications before I begin this morning. Uh, my, I am here by virtue of the alcoholism that my husband has acknowledged. Uh, and my I'm not going to have him stand up as Betty Cody did have Cody. The last time I shared about three weeks ago in a, in a town not far from us, uh, you know, when you stand up here, you watch the ones that snooze through it, and you watch those who read the paper, and you watch those who clean their fingernails, you know, and uh, are otherwise uninvolved with what's going on up here. And this little man, every time I made the slightest reference to my alcoholic, his head flipped around, and he honed in on Joe to see how he was, how he was taking this thing. Um, and then I had to realize last night how natural it was. I had to check Cody once or twice. <laughs> I think it's a tribute to the program that he laughed as loudly as I did. I think that's great. I think that's just great. I really do. Oh, 
Somebody also asked me after the program last night, are you going to play? I'm going to top this one tomorrow. I said, no way, no way. I'm not that stupid. But uh, I first was exposed to this program, I guess, and, and this, I, I'm not meaning to be dishonest or vague. It is part of the condition that I was in. I have, I can't tell you the year that I came to Al-Anon. I was uh, practicing one principle of the program when I got here, and that was that I was living life one day at a time. And I couldn't have told you with accuracy what year I was living in or what day it was. I was just having to do the best I could in the condition that I was in. And the truth of the matter was I didn't come with any high expectations of the program, and I didn't, I came for the basest of reasons. Uh, I had decided that I had had all I could take. And because I had remained churchy or uh, religious, in the worst sense of the word, I decided that I could not take so drastic a step without the approval of my church and the representative, the minister. And I wanted, what I wanted was somebody to tell me that I was doing the right thing. I couldn't even make that decision and hang with it. And I went for some counseling with him, and I, I didn't tell him all of it. I never have told anybody all of it. Uh, <laughs> and right now I don't anticipate that I have a shell. But I told him enough that I thought that I, he could get the general drift and that he would surely say, if I were you, I would get a divorce. I had been told that on more than one occasion by other people. And he said to me, have you ever thought about Al-Anon? No, I'd never really given any thought to it. It had been suggested to me on more than one occasion by people in our community. We had no group in Camilla. We are a very small town. and. There were two couples that I knew of who went twice a week to Thomasville, which was about 32 miles away, to Al-Anon and AA meetings. And I couldn't think of anything less enticing uh, to do with my time. <laughs> but if I was going to continue to be any anywhere near creditable person, I was going to have to carry through with this since the suggestion had been made by my minister. So I crawled in and I went to Al-Anon for, and the open AA meetings. Uh, now I didn't intend to do that, but Joe was furious at me, so I went to everything I could. Uh, <laughs> He was an unacknowledged alcoholic. I think, I think he knew in his heart, and I certainly knew in mine. Uh, I got there before he did. And I went, and I found something there that was so strange. It was so different from, they didn't ask for any credentials of any kind. Uh, they weren't impressed by the fact that I was a teacher by profession. Uh, they did not care. They, nobody asked, us, asked me what our income was. No, they just didn't seem to care. And it was the only place I'd ever gone in my life where you didn't have to have credentials of some kind. And I appreciated the democracy of the thing. I really did. And. My mental aberrations didn't seem to offend anybody, and the fact that I could not carry on a conversation with you of more than 30 seconds extent didn't seem to bother anybody. And if you were talking to me and I happened to be looking over your shoulder at something that was going on back of you, that was all right, too. Um, it had been a long time since I had experienced this kind of acceptance.
and it appealed to me enormously. But we had uh, a crisis with one of the parents that required a lot of attending and I allowed and it seemed it was really fantastic the way it worked out. My meetings down there were on Mondays and Thursdays and when the dust had cleared, I had responsibilities in the nursing matter on Mondays and Thursdays. Now I'm not sure how that came to pass. I don't know whether there was any manipulation or whether it was fate or what, but that's the way it worked out. I did not know when I came, I had so little left going for me. I did not know that I was sick emotionally, that I was sick spiritually, and I had developed a lot of physical problems. I was trying to take what had been handed me through my teaching and through my rearing and trying to apply it to a, a totally alien situation and it didn't work. It was taking its toll on all of us. Since I have come into the program, I have had a change of mind. Since I came into the program, I have had a change of heart. And since I came into the program, my will has changed completely. I thank God for all of these changes. They were long overdue. And I have come to understand that if I am going to take this program and what it has to offer to me, I would be an ingrate of the highest order if that I did not not only feel grateful, but act grateful. And grateful is a world away from being thankful. Thankful is something small and polite and temporary. And gratitude is something enormous that goes to the depths of me and is of a permanent nature. I changed my mind in more than one way. For many years I had, it seemed to me that my husband was enormously careless with opportunity about blessings that were his, about the good things in life. And I had long ago taken away the vote from that man. He, he was totally disenfranchised. I didn't, I didn't credit anything any opinion of his, anything that he said, because as far as I was concerned, he had lost the right to be right about anything. <laughs> I considered him an inferior person. In my head, I used the word sorry endlessly. <laughs> and I think I voiced it more than once. Oh, now, when you are dealing in a marital relationship with someone and have this attitude toward them, I can't think of anything more destructive. I believed my judgments to be correct. I believed myself essentially a good power, and insofar as he had let me, I was a good wife. I considered myself um, a, a with it person. I, I, I studied and I read and I studied, you know, I, I, I did all of these things that I thought were qualifying me. And all the time I had disqualified myself through the, my, the state of my heart. Uh, I had so steeled my heart, I had so hardened my heart, because I could not absorb any more pain. I had had all the pain that I could stand, thank you. And the only way that I could live without quivering like a jellyfish constantly 
was to make myself impervious to a lot of the things that were going on. Now couple this arrogant attitude with another, and this was sort of subterranean, I was filled by this time with self-doubt. I did not have any self-assurance. And all of this, I said, was a result of alcoholism. I know now when I look back, I brought so many of these character defects into the marriage. They were already a part of me. And I handled them largely by denial. I had never dealt with them on any meaningful level, in any meaningful way. And instead of becoming worse, anything that you neglect or ignore is not going to get better by itself. I'd always gone to church. I had been carried by my parents as a child, and I, I think now, and through the years, it had become for me an antidote. I saw it as an antidote uh, to the alcoholism in the family, in the household, as something positive. I was going to counteract all of the ravages of alcoholism by going to church and carrying my children. I thought I had a workable knowledge of my God, and I had been schooled to know about him, and what a pitfall that is. Um, knowing about is not the same as being acquainted with, having a relationship with. and this almost did me in because intellectually at church they told me that this was a force that should sustain. It was a force that should meet my needs, be able to meet my needs, and to be able to sustain me. Well, by glory, I was going down the drain, and I was still going, I was still going, and I was participating. Just ask me if you had something you wanted done. I was going to work my way into heaven by glory if they kill myself doing it. I would teach your study course for you, your Sunday school class. I would serve uh, in any capacity in the UMW. Nothing was too much for me. So you see, I went around uh, spreading this empty, this empty faith of mine that was allowing me, didn't give me anything to stand on. I was aloof from trying to keep myself above what I termed the degradation of alcoholism. I wanted a clean influence in my life, and this was the only place available to me. I was about the most self-righteous hypocritical person. I did not work with myself. I didn't have time to. I really did not have time to do anything with me. Uh, it was so obvious that Joe needed help so desperately. <laughs> uh, that man was under 24-hour surveillance. <laughs> now, I have been a sleepyhead all my life, and I trained my children. We have five children, and they, too, began to understand that this was their primary responsibility in regard to their father, that they watch him, <laughs> that they see how many trips he made to the trunk of the car or out to the dog house or out to the well house or wherever uh, the bottle was stashed. And can you imagine, can you imagine the unease and the lack of security 
that I ducked over on those innocent children. And when I made my first talk in Al-Anon, I stood behind this podium and said, the only thing I ever did right was that I never tried to influence my children against their father. I never tried to develop a feeling of hostility toward their father. Well, you don't have to say anything to do that. You don't have to do anything overtly. They're like little sponges, and they absorb, and they see, and they hear, and they pick up everything that's going on around them. I, when I came in, depending upon whom I was with and with whom I was talking, by turn I loved my husband devotedly and hated his guts. Uh, that was what was inside me. And when a sick new Al-Anon comes in and they begin to open up a little bit, the first most horrible, devastating thing that they're going to share with you is, I don't really know how I feel about him. Sometimes I love him, I think I love him, but sometimes I just hate him so. And when Dennis shared yesterday about his feeling about the Elinons, We had some choice terms, too. Uh, uh, that's why when we first come in, we're all so devastated, both sides of the program. And Joe and I had long ago taken our paths that went like this, and when they came to a stop, we were way out yonder on the back side of nowhere, eons away from each other. And we talk about cooperation and we talk about unity, but when we come here, the needs that are so compelling, that are so unbelievable in every one of us, I wonder sometimes how the programs absorb that, how they, they have to be of a power greater than the components. We just come with such crying, unbelievable needs. All of us do. I had to be here a while before I understood that. I had always been more concerned with externals than I had internals about how it looked from the outside. Um, I had wanted, I had had the overwhelming desire for a number of years now to leave this man. I wanted to wash my hands of all of the things that go with alcoholism. I wanted to be rid of it. I wanted to be through with it. I was so tired of trying to cope. I was just, I was just wearied out. But to make a decision, how can you make a decision? You can make 500 decisions, I could, within the space of 60 minutes, and could keep none of those. I was so filled with anger and frustration and resentment. I didn't even know that I was angry with him. I had been punished more than once as a child for unacceptable acting out of temper. It was unacceptable in our family. I was punished when my temper was released and I acted it out in unacceptable ways. 
So what I had done was stuff it down inside myself. I had refused to recognize what was going on with myself. With five children and an alcoholic husband. And if you're going to be super mom, and all of the wonderful things that I had been trained to become and to grow up to be, it left little time for me. Didn't that make me a good wife and mother? If I gave everything that I had to my life situation, I have come to believe, you know, the Bible says that you could divide all the people in the world between the sheep and the goats. I have another way to divide them. That's the givers and the takers. And sometimes I think that being on the giving side, the giving in, can be as much of a curse. We talk about, and I was giving from an empty pail. I was trying to give that which I did not have. My mother had brought me up to believe, I've heard her say numerous times, the greatest pleasure in life that you will have is when you do something to create happiness for someone else, doing for others. Well, now, this smacked of self-sacrifice and self-denial. And I perfected that to a high point. I really did. Uh, to almost the total destruction of self. I still am not entirely comfortable when I act from a selfish stance, just for me, you know, something that just I want, just for myself. I still have a twinge of conscience, and I have been here for over eight years, but I'm getting a little better about it. I'm getting a little better about it. There were several things in my youth, in my training, that set me up for what was going to happen to me in my adult years. There were six children in my family, in the family in which I was raised, and the household included my maternal grandmother. Now, I'm going to make a small departure and I'm give you something different. I never had any doubts as a child that I was loved and appreciated. My, mother, my parents were both 28 years old when they married and managed to get in six children after that. Uh, <laughs> mother, I'm sure, had long ago accepted the fact that she probably would be an old maid school teacher. She had taught school for years and... Uh, I guess the word that I heard applied to my mother more than any other was dignified. She was a person of great dignity. I came to recognize as I grew up that she was a person who was timid, who did not have all of the self-assurance that she needed, and somehow that was handed on to me too with some of the other things that she she taught me. It was, uh, by and large, a happy childhood. I don't believe any child ever, I don't care how happy it is, grows up without trauma of one kind or another. We all have hurting, scarring experiences of one sort or another when we're children. And there is no utopia. Even though I tried... That's what I wanted for my children. I wanted a utopia for my children. 
Uh, I was the oldest daughter in these. There were two brothers older than I. I was the oldest daughter in this family. And because I was the oldest daughter, I got more training from my mother, I think, than the younger children did. She needed help. And since I became the mother of five children, I can relate to that now. I resented it then. But she needed help. And uh, she began to teach me the art of accepting responsibility. Well, I got so good at it, I didn't just accept it when I was offered. I went out looking for it. <laughs> uh, that grandmother who lived there all of the years of my growing up and, and my youth had always encouraged me to be the kind of person who could do anything. That was the way she termed it. Uh, her father had been had died during the Civil War, and she had grown up in a household of women who became very self-sufficient and equal to any task. And it had served her because she grew up and married a man who loved to read and was interested in translating Latin and loved to play poker. Uh, I didn't learn those facts until I was adult. I was raised in a rather artificial atmosphere in that I never heard my parents discuss the weaknesses or the character defects of any of their contemporaries or any of the family members. I grew up believing that all adults were super people. And what a revelation that was when I finally... <laughs> um, I feel like it was a fairly wholesome rearing, and I was bundled up and sent off to college when I graduated from high school, and I didn't know I had any options. My mother didn't offer me any. Oh, she had long ago planned out our lives for us, and you know, I didn't know until a few years ago that you weren't supposed to do that for your children. I really didn't. Oh, that you could allow your children to make some choices for themselves. After I had graduated from college and taught three years, Joe and I married. And to protect myself and my weak self-esteem, when I first came to this program, I implied that I didn't know there was any existent problem. Now, I loved social drinking. I thought it was fun. And since I had a little bit of the timidity and the shyness that my mother had shared with me, I realized that it sort of released, you know, let down some of the barriers, and I thought, good idea. And I was always intrigued by the fact that I had been brought up to follow the rules. I had to obey all the rules. I'd go out of my way. I, I didn't want to transgress uh, the rules. And here I was going with somebody, if it had a no parking sign on it, he immediately pulled up, wheeled in, and, and jumped out. Now, I don't, I don't ever remember having a tow away or a ticket or anything, and if I had done that, I would have had to walk home or gotten a, it had there been a taxi in Camilla, I would have got, had to get a taxi. And he sort of didn't follow the rules you know, like I thought I had to, and I thought, well, this is, this is fun, this is pretty neat, you know. And um, so we married, and I look back now, and I guess you could have scoured the woods and you wouldn't have found two more emotionally immature people ill-prepared for the responsibilities of marriage and, and, and parenthood in all southwest Georgia. Uh, <laughs> Betty Cody thought she was telling you something tremendous last night when she said Cody had three sisters and was an only son. Mine was an only son with seven sisters. <laughs> Now that's one-upmanship. That's the only time I'm going to do that. 
um, he was uh, he was pretty impressed with himself. And you know, when you come across <laughs> when you come across somebody like that, you know you you'll buy them just that way, just that way. And I thought, well, you know, he must be pretty neat. He seems to think he is. And uh, so we got married, and we had those five children, one daughter and four sons. And I, too, have my suspicions about one or two. But... uh, they saw my violent reaction to their father's alcoholism, and I think what they call themselves doing is protecting Mama. I'm not sure they think at this point that I could take it. Oh, and they're very careful. They're pretty careful about how much I see and how much I'm aware of. Oh, that's okay. That'll take care of itself in time, I'm sure. Oh, if my experience serves me correctly. Now, when I came in here or uh, into this program, they told me that alcoholism was a disease. Now, a disease is something that just happens. It's not something that you go around shopping for or that you ask for from the shelf, or that you put in your shopping buggy. Uh, I really had difficulty with this for a matter of years. This was hard for me to accept. It was hard for me to appreciate. Oh, if if it was an illness, that meant that he too was a victim of something which was unchosen, unselected. If this was so, he was the victim too. I had always considered myself his victim. (laughs) I had felt myself victimized for years. I felt that his alcoholism was something directed toward me personally. It was something he did just to make me miserable. And how am I going to depart from this attitude now? How am I going to handle this and make it fit in or groove with this concept of illness, of disease? Oh, I don't know how it ever, I I can't tell you of any blinding revelation that ever came to pass. I think that when you are as damaged mentally and emotionally as I was when I came in, it happens only by rote, by repetition, just hearing it time after time after time. And some of these things I have heard until I would almost scream with the monotony of it. And then when I would get that reaction, I would move over into some sort of state of acceptance. Norma shared with you her favorite page this morning. I want to share with you from our reading of March the 16th. Acceptance and surrender are the two attitudes that open all doors to us in the Al-Anon way of living. Yet they are the most difficult for many of us to acquire. No matter how badly we think life has beaten us, We still cling to the idea that acceptance and surrender are a kind of hopeless giving in, a weakness of character. Not so. Acceptance means simply admitting there are things we cannot change. Accepting them puts an end to our futile struggles and frees our thought and energy to work on things that can be changed. Surrender means relinquishing our self-will and accepting God's will and his help. It was a, a long and difficult route from where I was to where this said I needed to be. 
I had submitted to a lot of things because I could do nothing about them. But never once in my heart and soul had I accepted them. I railed against them internally because they weren't acceptable to me. And I could not understand, I could not get this idea through my mind that because I could do nothing about them, that they had to be totally accepted emotionally. I had lived a yo-yo existence for so long, I found it almost impossible to get to any state of mind or any place where I could stand comfortably and stay there. Um, I watched the progression of disease in this man, and because I was so emotionally involved, I could, I, was, I could not see so many of the things that are apparent to me now looking back. He struggled with it as so many of you did. I think he was as shocked and disappointed by what transpired so oftentimes as I was. But because my pain was so intense, I missed this in him. Our children began to grow up, and I began to see reflections in them of the emotionally sick household in which we were dwelling. And I handled it as I had always handled it, by trying to keep a lid on it keeping, it, keeping it confined to the house. We lived in this small town, and there was really no anonymity as such. Oh, I had all of my life known who the alcoholics were. without ever being told. And I had never envisioned this fate for myself. And it was particularly hateful to me because I knew that, as I said, there was no real anonymity. I never once talked to my children about their father's alcoholism. I was protecting them. Talk about insanity. They lived in the house with it 365 days a year, and I didn't talk to them about it because I didn't want to burden them. Can you imagine the fear and the terror and the panic that existed in those children without even the release of being able to talk to their crazy mother? <laughs> I didn't want to stigmatize their father for them. This uh, was inevitable that the second to youngest son and those last two children in true alcoholic fashion had been born about 15 months apart and it seems that there was a joke made one day to the second youngest that mama's gotten a new baby and you'll be my boy now and I think he thought, good, you know, well, I'll, I'll have Daddy and Bobby will have Mama. But it doesn't work out that way, you know. Um, the alcoholic parent is available sometimes and sometimes he's not. And it depends upon the course of the disease, not upon the timing of the need. 
of the child or the other person. And he went to kindergarten. Never, never did he make an adjustment. Never. He was as if he were crammed down in someone else's skin. He, he was never comfy. He never wanted to go anywhere. He couldn't make friends. Oh, he was different. And then when the time came to start school, oh, I would pick him up in the afternoon and he'd crawl in the back seat and sink down into the foot and break into these just racking sobs that would just tear your heart out. Just sob and sob and sob all the way home. And I didn't know how to I didn't know how to deal with it. I was terrified of what was happening. And I'd always kept the lid so tightly on everything and I saw that I didn't know I didn't know how to deal with this, but I felt like it was beyond anything that I was capable of. But I was going to give it the old college try. And I would send him back to his room and say, you cannot come out until you have yourself under control. And the sounds that would come from that room and go back down, he would have ripped all of the bedclothes off the bed and swept everything off of the shelves. And just like a storm, a six-year-old storm, and then when he had just acted out all of that rage and frustration, he would throw himself on the bed and sob himself to sleep. This sick woman watched that child do that for a matter of months. And then it just became so arrogant and so unbearable that I had a conference with his teacher and she strongly suggested that he needed help professional help well I had mumbled once or twice something about going to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and my husband said I hope you have the money for it I'm not paying for any such trash but he realized that the child was in need and I found help for him and he went and the way he had always handled his outside contacts was to just go underground. He just was not there. He, it was just as if you'd taken an eraser and erased him. And he went and sat in the office with that man, appointment after appointment after appointment. And then he called me back for a second conference one day, and he says, I can't get, he will not, he will not share with me. He will not tell me one thing. He will just sit here and cry. And he asked if there was anything that I could tell him, and that was the first time I ever used the word alcoholism in connection with my husband. And was stricken to the core of my being by the fact that I was being disloyal in saying this about my husband. Well, he had his therapy, and he did get better. He's still different. Oh, I'm not sure how much good feeling he has about himself. I have one or two pretty arrogant ones. Oh, I don't know how real that is, but uh, this one is still has a lot that seems to be lacking. They told me when I got here I had to let go and let God. Now I'll be utterly frank with you. I couldn't remember any time in my life when God had come with a lightning flash and directly intervened in any nasty situation in my life. And if I let go, I just knew everything was just going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> I just didn't see how I could do this, and over and over again they would tell me. I'd say, somebody has to do it, and they would say, why? And I would thought, well, I thought, well, your, your circumstances are different from mine. If I hadn't done all these wonderful things all these years, there would be no way that we would be here. Um, but patience, loving patience, 
and tell me, take it or leave it. No way. I have thought with utter horror more than once. What if I had come along 50, 60 years ago when all of this had happened to me and there had been no place to go like there was when I was in such desperate need? We were a sick, sick family. We looked okay from the outside. There had not been a divorce. We hadn't lost the business. We were still doing some of the things that normal people, quote, do. And yet a hate, an existence that was so hateful to me and to him by this time, because you can imagine what a joy I was to live with. Uh, I was really a joy. I really was. I didn't even have any tolerance for myself by the time I got here. I was a frenzied bundle of activity. And I didn't know, as I told you, about all this anger and this hateful feeling that I had stuffed down inside myself. And as I began to release a little bit of it, I began to feel like I had been deboned, as if every bone in my body had been removed. And I felt like I must be suffering from a terminal illness of some kind. And then someone made reference to adrenaline one night, and I knew that for years I had been flying around with this overabundance, this adrenaline just pumping like mad, trying to outrace myself and the facts of my situation. So the serenity almost did me in. I, I was afraid I was going to have to take to my bed. Uh, <laughs> unaccustomed as I was to it, it just, it was such a strange, strange sensation. And it didn't come immediately. Oh, I was so stupid when I came, I thought, oh, I'd always read voraciously, and I just madly just dived into this program. I was going to be better at it than anybody else ever had been. I was going to do it better than anybody ever had been. And I was listening to a tape by Joel from Tyler, Texas this week, and he said in this deep bass voice, he says, At times I was almost godlike. <laughs> I became almost godlike and garnered the title Mother Superior. Oh. <laughs> I did, I really did, and could not see myself as I really was. Oh, my mother had gone, uh, the method of teaching when she was a child was memory, a lot of memory work. And when she was confined to her bed the last two years of her life, when she was 87 and 88 years of age, she would lie there and repeat just endlessly all those old poems and, and things that she had learned as a child. And it, it just, I couldn't believe it, but she did. And one of her favorites was Robert Burns' Word that God the gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us. And I thought that would be neat to her. That'd be a neat gift to have. You know, it really would. But I have come to thank by God that I never could. And if I had, if I really could have seen myself as I was, I would have died through utter sheer shame of... I had not, I told someone this morning, they tell us that we'll probably stay on the pink cloud for about three months. I stayed for about four years. I was giddy, I was, a, I was idiotic with, with utter 
excitement and the utter release of myself from all of this secret existence that I'd had to live for 20 or 25 years. And it was no small thing to me to go somewhere where people, when I would try to express myself and before I get through, somebody would be saying, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Nobody had known what I was talking about for years. Oh, it was as if I was speaking an entirely foreign language. I must inventory daily. I can get off the path faster than anybody you ever saw. I, my trolley just goes running off into the wild blue yonder, and I have to stay in constant contact with the principles of this program, and I must inventory myself daily. I came in and I found hope which I had not, didn't even have a speaking acquaintance with it for years. And it gave me hope for the present, for the day in which I was living. And it told me that I did not have to worry about tomorrow all the days thereafter. And I was the biggest doom. I, could, I was a prophet of doom for years. It, we were just at gold. Everything was going to go down the drain. And we were just going to be. And I didn't realize how poverty-stricken I was. I had more things of the world than I did of the Spirit. Only God could have helped me in the condition in which I was in. And he was there all the time. And I did not know it. Um, I really think that I took the first step before Joe came to the program. I had become so weary with myself. Do you know that feeling? I grow weary. I grow weary with the things I hear myself saying. I grew weary with the things that I kept doing. And I didn't know anything else to say or anything else to do. And it was just a, a, a boring, defeating repetition in reaction to something about which I could do nothing. I was loaded down with all this load of anger. And when I recognized that, I was immediately stricken with guilt. And I saw a page that Norma had pasted in the back of her ODAT book there about forgiveness. And I came not long ago against this line that says, Peace comes from being willing to forgive. Oh, I wanted Joe to ask me to forgive him. I wanted him to get busy on the matter of making amends. I wanted him to clean up this mess and, and let's get this house cleaned up and things right. I'd been in the program five years before it ever the phantom chased across my mind that perhaps I had some amends to make. Um, how self-righteous can you be? I am willing to forgive, and I, I can't think of you anything more precious in my life now than the fact that you can be just as tacky as you want to be. You can act out of the most unbelievable hostility. You can be as unaccepting as you choose. I do not have to let that make me unhappy. Um, when we married, I gave him the responsibility for making me happy. And he didn't take that responsibility very seriously. <laughs> he told me, I have always hunted and fished whenever I got ready, and I shall continue to do it whenever I want to. 
Well, I had a strong sense of justice, and I thought, that's okay. You do what you want to do, and then I can do what I want to do. And that worked about 30 days. Um, somehow or other, with the family responsibility, that became impossible. I thought. You see, I thought. Because I bought something for myself that was not necessary. And this is awful to have to say. Uh, because I had wanted to give him the responsibility for everything that was wrong in our lives. To look back and to know that so much of what went wrong I did to myself. Now that'll defuse the bomb. Oh, it really will. And this is what Diane was talking about, and, and this is what Betty was talking about. And it doesn't happen suddenly. And if there are any of you are who are in here who are comparatively new in the program, I want to tell you from my experience, because I was so extraordinarily brilliant, I, from time to time in my Al-Anon experience, have had this feeling when I had a sudden insight or I saw a new truth, I would say, oh my goodness, I've reached the peak. This is, the, this is it. I know it all now. And almost immediately, I am given the opportunity to fall flat on my face. <laughs> or make a fool of myself in some unusual way that I'd never thought up before. <laughs> and I know that there is always more. This is a spiritual program, which means that I am dealing with the inner person. And it is an endless, bottomless reservoir. And because of this program, and I feel that it had to be devised by a power greater than man and then offered to us through people of faith. And to know how it is served in my life, I'm just one person. I'm just one person. I'm going, I want to share one more little thing with you. I didn't realize how, how fast I could get angry anymore because I, I just don't get that angry uh, anymore. But my sister, my younger sister, who's become very spiritual, and I think she may garner the title that I have relinquished if she doesn't walk out, watch out. <laughs> but we were making a little trip together in the last month, and she said, uh, Sister, I've been thinking about it, and she said, It seems to me that there's a snare in this AA Al-Anon program that might be, uh, might keep you from growing spiritually to the extent that you might. Uh, that it seems that you might just get to a certain place and stop there. Well, you talk about sputtering. I, I, I've never been so inflamed in my life. Um, she's younger than I am, and I told her, I said, let me tell you one thing right now. I'll talk to you about most anything. But I said, in the first place you don't have, you watched my alcoholic situation. Watching it and living it is slightly different. I said, now, well, you can talk about anything you want to with me, except the Al-Anon and AA programs. If you ain't been there, you don't have the foggiest notion. 
And I said, how many people who are lying, sodden, drunk, with their families standing around them, watching them die by degrees, are going to be intimately concerned with their spiritual development. And she didn't say anything else, and I don't believe she will. Uh, <laughs> These programs survive an avalanche of sickness flowing into it daily. Why? It's unbelievable. When you think what these programs sustain, we get them coming in wanting to rewrite the 12 uh, steps immediately. You know, they're not in the proper order. It could be better worded or whatever. And I was one of those too. Uh, but it absorbs it. It absorbs all that sickness. And we say, take me by the hand. I have something I want to show you. I have something I want to share with you. And it's one of the most, it's an experience I would have missed for anything in the world. And when Virginia stood here and say, grateful for the alcoholism in my life. It's a condition, it's a statement I never expected to make. Yet had it not been for the alcoholism and for this program, I would have died. That hard-headed, strong-willed, stubborn, ignorant person that I was when I got to him. This has been a beautiful experience this weekend. I just love the sharing from all of these people who will hear from Friday night on. It, um, for me to rid myself of the sick small town pride that was mine when I came here. And to be able to tell you not of the triumphs in my life, but the total defeats. And to feel utterly comfortable, not be totally ashamed as I would have been eight years ago, is a gift of the program that I prize highly. Let me say, I have no special gifts as such. We were talking about the privilege of sharing. I have recognized in our area that it's the same people over and over again. doesn't make any difference the terms in which you put it. If you reach down into the depths of your heart, you've got something to share that your heroes need. So think of the sharing in terms of yourself. Thank you again for the privilege of being with you. You've been a very kind and receptive audience this morning. Thank you.